All right. Well, we have launched off on this rather daunting series to preach one message um, from each book of the Bible, and that's to give us an overview of the main message of the Bible from beginning to end. And last week, we began with the book of beginnings, which is um, Genesis. And the presupposition I'm working with here is that the great theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, understood as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That kingdom began in the garden. That was the pattern of the kingdom, Adam and Eve being in that garden paradise under God's rule and blessing. But that kingdom was lost, so to speak, through the fall. They disobeyed. They were banished from the garden. The first promise of redemption and recovery of God's kingdom is in Genesis 3.15, where God promises that someday a seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, a promise of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom. We saw, as we studied the book of Genesis and its narrative, how God powerfully, sovereignly, and graciously preserved that promise of a seed through that narrative in Genesis, preserving it through Noah's flood, preserving it by calling Abraham out of a family of idolaters to whom he promised a land, or rather a nation, a land, and that he would be a blessing to the whole world. God preserved that promise of a seed through all the flaws and failures of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. He preserved it through Joseph. As Joseph came into Egypt as a slave, was was exalted to second in command, and was the instrument of God to preserve the Hebrew people. And we saw how God preserved the seed in Egypt from intermingling and intermarrying with the pagan Egyptians because they were in their own isolated land of Goshen. But where did Genesis leave us so far as the kingdom of God, God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing? Well, God's people are only 70 strong, the family of Jacob, far from being like the sand of the sea and the stars of the, of the sky that God had promised. They are not in the promised land of Canaan. They are in Egypt. And as far as worldwide blessing, it is very far off. Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. But friends, we are now on the long road to the ultimate victory of God's kingdom. And that takes us to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and it's from two Greek words, ek haros. Ek means out of, haros means road or way. And so Exodus means the road out. It's going to be the road out of Egypt. And what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to give you a travelogue through Exodus. We're going to look at some themes from Exodus and then some takeaways by way of application from the book of Exodus for our lives. So first, a travelogue, a journey through Exodus. Um, God has made promises to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What we're going to see in Exodus is the fulfillment of one part of God's promise. The first part, I'm going to make you a great nation. And what we have in the book of Exodus is God making his people into a great nation. The travelogue through Exodus is going to have four parts to it. 
First of all, the Exodus itself, which I'm calling the great deliverance that frees Israel to become a great nation. Then we're going to see the Mosaic Covenant that forms the great nation. And then the tabernacle, where God manifests his presence to that great nation, that marks out his people as a, uh, his nation. And then we can't leave out the flagrant disobedience of the great nation and God's forgiveness of them. So sit back, relax. We're not going to touch down in Scripture too much because we, we, we couldn't cover it if we did. But let me try to give you a travelogue, a journey through the book of Exodus, beginning with the great deliverance that frees Israel to become a great nation. First, we see the multiplication of the Hebrews in the land. The first chapter, verse 7 says, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. From the original 70 people, they multiplied over 400 years into hundreds of thousands of people in the land. But that multiplication led to opposition. Pharaoh, seeing how the people had multiplied, whereas he had originally welcomed Jacob and his family into Egypt, now he saw them as a threat. What if we Egyptians go to war and the Hebrews in our land side with our enemies? That will not be good for us. And maybe they will then leave. And so Pharaoh comes to see the Hebrews as a threat. What does he do? He appoints taskmasters over them who imposed hard labor, even told the Hebrew midwives to kill every male Hebrew baby that is born. As you know, they disobeyed that command, and God blessed them for it. So Pharaoh, um, now we're going to see the provision of a deliverer. When that plan fails, Pharaoh tells all the Egyptians to take every Hebrew baby, male baby, and throw him in the Nile River to kill him. But one Hebrew woman has a baby boy, and he's beautiful. She's from the tribe of Levi, and she hides him for three months, and then she puts him in a wicker basket by the side of the Nile. Friends, he is found and rescued by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter, who defies her father's decree to kill these babies and takes her to be her own son and raises him in Pharaoh's palace. That, of course, was Moses, right? And the very name Moses means to draw out of the water. And God, in his kindness, even allows Moses' own mother to be his nursemaid there in the palace. So Moses is raised in the palace of Pharaoh with the wisdom of the Egyptians. But when he grows up, he recognizes that his people are the Hebrew people, and he sees that they're being mistreated, and he wants to help. Well, his first effort to help was when he saw uh, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. He thought he was helping. That really backfired on Moses. Pharaoh then saw that Moses was an enemy, and Moses is forced to flee. He flees to the land of Midian. He meets the priest, the high priest of Midian by the name of Jethro, ends up marrying Jethro's daughter, and for 40 years, he's a shepherd there in Midian. At the end of that 40 years, God appears to him in a burning bush, right? And in that burning bush, God says, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I want to deliver them. Now, Moses would have thought, that's a great idea, God. 
But then God drops the bomb on, on Moses when he says, and I want you to go to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. But to buttress the confidence of Moses, God makes this amazing revelation of himself. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am who I am. An amazing revelation of God. It was a daunting task to go to the most powerful man in the world. But the Lord wanted Moses to know that I am who I am is going with you. What does that reveal about God? It reveals that he is the self-existent, independent, autonomous, eternal, immutable, sovereign God. And I'm going with you. Chapters 3 and 4 tell us how Moses complained that he was unfit for the job. Literally, he says, I am heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. But God tells him to go anyway. He says, now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But God accommodates to Moses, gives him his brother Aaron, who is more fluent. And so God raises up Moses. Now preparation for the deliverance. First of all, the plagues. Exodus records how Moses and Aaron made repeated appeals to Pharaoh in the name of God, saying, let my people go. And we see that Pharaoh is conflicted. On the one hand, he doesn't want to lose all this free slave labor that they've had for 400 years. On the other hand, the pressure of one plague after another begins to take its toll. Remember what the plagues are? Water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the cattle killed, boils on the skin, hail, locusts eating the vegetation, darkness, and then the final plague, the death of the Egyptian firstborn. Pharaoh is both pictured in Exodus as hardening his own heart and his heart being hardened by God, about 10 times each. The apostle Paul uses Pharaoh as an example in Romans 9 of his sovereignty. When he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. God is sovereign. But on the other hand, Pharaoh's responsible, because whereas God hardens his heart, he is said to have hardened his own heart as well. Now, the question is asked, why 10 plagues? God could have done it in one fell swoop. I think the answer comes to us in the words of Exodus 9.16, where God says, and this is quoted in Romans 9.17, but indeed, for this reason, God says to Pharaoh, I, for this reason, I've allowed you to remain in order to show my power and to proclaim my name through all the earth. God dragged it out through 10 plagues to make it crystal clear to the Hebrews, to the Egyptians, and really to the ends of the earth that he is the sovereign God. He has power over the elements, not the false gods of Egypt. He has power over the animals. He has power even over the hearts of men. Ten plagues stretched out to show that God is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. The only other time in history when there was such an outpouring of miracles was when one greater than Moses was on the earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the plagues... Prepare for the great deliverance, wearing Pharaoh down to the point of exasperation. But the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, is the last plague, the death of the firstborn. 
And here we have the Passover. The final plague would be that God would come, his death angel would come, and the firstborn from every Egyptian household of man and cattle would die at midnight. The way the Hebrews were to be spared that judgment was this. They were to kill a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. And when the death angel passed over, he would see the blood and literally pass over them and spare them judgment. And then he also told them to celebrate a yearly feast of unleavened bread and the Passover to commemorate this day throughout their subsequent history. So at midnight, the death, death angel passes over the homes. Every firstborn in the home of every Egyptian household is killed. And there's a great cry that goes out through the land, a cry of anguish and mourning. But every Jewish firstborn was untouched. Why? Because of the lamb's blood that was put on the doorposts and the lintel. And then we see the separation of the sea that actually brings the deliverance. The death of the firstborn is enough for Pharaoh to plead with the people to leave. Get out of here. But soon after that, he has a change of heart. He's probably thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to lose all this free slave labor. And so he decides to pursue them with 600 chariots. And then the amazing miracle took place. 600 chariots bearing down on an estimated 1.6 million Hebrews, women, children, animals, pinned in by the sea. And this is one passage I have to read, beginning at Exodus 14 and verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. I like that passage. It's like prayer meeting's over, Moses. There's a time to pray. There's a time to act. Why are you crying out to me? Get going. The Lord will fight for you. Okay. Um, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And then you see the distinction God makes between his people, his chosen people, and his enemies. The pillar of cloud that was leading the people now moves to go before the Egyptian army and the Israelites. And now we read this in 1421. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. But then jumping down to verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. And then we read in verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. You get the picture? All of God's chosen people dry shod through the sea. All of God's enemies, the entire army of Pharaoh, drowned in the sea. And then, to wrap up this journey through Exodus, there's a celebration. Well, no, just this part of it. There's a celebration of the deliverance in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. I only want to read two verses, and I want to point something out to you. Then, after this mighty, miraculous deliverance, the great Old Testament salvation, as it were, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The thing I point out to you, friends, is that God will be glorified both in judgment and in salvation. And if you read through the entire song, it glorifies God for his victory in wiping out Pharaoh's army as well as his saving his people. God's going to be glorified no matter what. And I say to you, he's going to be glorified either in your damnation or your salvation. Please, if you're not a believer, choose to have God glorified by your salvation rather than by your condemnation. So there's a celebration uh, at that time, and then he establishes a yearly feast to pass over an unleavened bread to always remember what God did, to remember that it wasn't because you were better than the Egyptians. It was only because of the blood that made a difference. And so we have the great deliverance, this exodus that frees Israel to become a great nation. Now we want to see the Mosaic covenant that forms the great nation of Israel. After passing through the Red Sea, they are led by for three months by the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. The people grumble, as we'll come to see is their pattern. They grumble against Moses and against God in the wilderness. God supplies them very graciously with manna and quails to eat. And then they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God enters into covenant with them, making them a holy nation. And I want to point out several things about this covenant, this Mosaic covenant. First, the nature of the God of the covenant. How does God show up on Mount Sinai? He shows up in a way that communicates his awesome holiness. He comes to the mountain in a thick cloud. There are thunder and lightning flashes, a very loud trumpet sound, the whole mountain is quaking violently, and the people are trembling. And the warning is given through Moses to the people. Don't let them break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. God wants to communicate that he is an awesomely holy God. He is not a domesticated deity, 
that they can control. What about the nature of the covenant? The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is a conditional covenant. That is, the blessings are contingent upon the obedience of the people. Listen to the words in 19, 5 and 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was a conditional covenant. It was a breakable covenant. And as we know, it was broken. What, are, what is the basis of the covenant? So many writers want to really convey, and I think rightly, that this is not a legalistic covenant. It's not a list of do's and don'ts to earn salvation. The basis of the covenant is this. As God says before he gives the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You see, he front loads it with the fact that I'm your deliverer, I'm your savior. And all these commands are to be done, not to earn salvation, but in gratitude for what I have done for you. It's not a legal covenant per se. They are to obey God because of the great mercy shown to them in that deliverance. What are the stipulations of the covenant? Well, at the heart of the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, given here in chapter 20, verses 2 to 17. You know them. The first four deal with our responsibility to God. No other gods before me. Don't make any graven image of me. Reverence my name. Don't take my name in vain. Honor my day. And then the, the latter six have to do with our relationship to our, our neighbors, right? Shall... Be obedient to parents and not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not lie, not covet. Really, all of them point to the supremacy of God. Because even when we sin against our neighbor, we're violating God. If you don't submit to human authorities that God has put over you, ultimately you're sinning against God. If you murder, you're killing someone who's made in the image of God. If you commit adultery, you're violating God's moral standard and showing your discontentment. If you lie, you're violating the God who is the God of truth and cannot lie. So really all of the commands are meant to convey the supremacy of God. And then after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 21 to 23, there are a lot of detailed commands that kind of flesh out and apply the Ten Commandments, showing that the Lord reigns over all of life, and these are given to govern the civil life of God's people, Commands about slavery, which, by the way, was never man-stealing. It was more indentured servanthood. Oh, about personal injuries, whether inflicted by man or animal, personal property, theft, restitution, sexual sins, how to treat strangers, laws about lending money, laws about justice against partiality, the year of rest for the land, the warning against idolatry, the three national, a whole lot of laws showing that if God is your God, God is going to order every area of your life. I think the New Testament counterpart would be 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And then Israel pledges its obedience to the covenant, which if you know the subsequent history, it's a bit of a joke, but, but they did. They pledged their obedience before the Ten Commandments were given. In, in 19.8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And when the covenant is 
um, ratified in chapter 24, again, after hearing the words of Moses, we read, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, as we continue the travelogue, you see the exodus out that prepares them to become a nation, the covenant made that actually makes them a great nation. Now, the tabernacle where God dwells with the great nation of Israel. Even though it's called Exodus, a lot of the book of Exodus has to do with the tabernacle. In fact, 13 of the 40 chapters have to do with the tabernacle. Chapters 25 to 31, seven chapters giving detailed instructions about the construction of the tabernacle. And then chapters 35 to 40, details about how it was actually built. Almost a third of the book is about the tabernacle. The word tabernacle is used 55 times. It's synonym, tent of meeting, 33 times. R.C. Sproul explains the tabernacle in typical Sproul, earthly fashion, earthy fashion. He says, a large, it's a large tent and fenced-in area encompassing 1,200 square yards, which means nothing except that he says one quarter the size of a football field. You got that, right? That we can picture. It was divided into three sections. There's an outer court, an inner court, and then a small room called the Holy of Holies. Of course, it was portable. It was mobile because they were on the move. It could be packed up and carried. And so a lot of the instructions were the poles that would go through the rings to carry the various pieces of furniture. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? The purpose was that God would dwell with his people, a mark of God's people in every age to the consummation is he is with his people. He is present with his people. And so Exodus 29, 45 and 46, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. His purpose in bringing them out is that he might be with them. And so that's the purpose, the pattern. Oh my over and over again, we read words like 25.9, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. 25.40, see that you make them the furniture after the pattern for them, which was shown you on the mountain. 26.30, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown on the mountain. Friends, I read through Exodus in preparation for this. I thought I can't preach on it and not read through it. But reading through those chapters is really tedious because the details are exquisite, phenomenal, specific, minute instructions about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that goes over it, the gold cherubim that hover over it, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the curtains of linen and goat's hair, the exact length and width of the boards and sockets, the kind of wood used, the, the bronze altar, the veil, the screen, the garments of the priest in great detail. The exactitude is amazing. You got to do it exactly as God is saying. But the presence of God is the main purpose. And God indicates something about his presence and about himself because you got the outer court, but then you have two intersections. Only the priest could enter them. And the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, only the high priest could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
So on the one hand, God's with his people, but he wants to convey to them, I am an awesomely holy God. And you don't have, you can't just casually enter into my presence. That is conveyed by the tabernacle. One more point in the travelogue here. God include this, the great disobedience of the great nation. God promised to make them a great nation. Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea and like the stars of the sky. He also wanted them to be good. He called them, Exodus 19, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But friends, as you know, almost immediately after ratifying the covenant, they lapse into blatant disobedience and idolatry. Moses is up on the mountain, 40 days. The people under Aaron's governance are, are getting impatient. Where is this Moses? And thinking of another leader. And they put pressure on Aaron to make a god for themselves. And so they all contribute gold earrings thrown into a fire. And out of that, Aaron fashions for them a molten or golden calf. And he says to the people, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. God had just given them the commandment, don't make any likeness of me. This is your God, this golden molten calf. This is your God. When God hears of it and knows of it, he is so angry, he's determined to wipe them out. He says to Moses, let's start all over again with you. Only Moses' intercession, which we saw in another sermon, spares the people. When Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees what they've done, he throws the two tablets down and smashes them and he, he grinds up the calf and he makes the people drink the particles in water. God allows the, the sons of Levi to kill 3,000 people of the Israelites as a judgment. Well, as a result of that idolatry, God at first declines to go with them. He says, I'm not going to go with you any longer. I'm going to send an angel. Moses again intercedes, and God agrees to go. The tablets are replaced. The covenant is renewed. And there's this, one of the great self-revelations of God is given to Moses, who seeks to know God's glory. And listen to these words in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the God of the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Self-revelation of God. But regarding this blatant outbreak of idolatry, which is not a one-off experience, we'll see this becomes characteristic of the people of Israel. Throughout their history, they are a stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, idolatrous people. But what it points to is the inadequacy and weakness of the old covenant under Moses. The, the law given through Moses had the power to command, demand, to convict, to condemn, and to curse the sinner. The law had no power to justify no power to change our hearts. The theologian Thomas Schreiner says, even though the covenant is gracious, since the Lord liberated Israel in his mercy, the hearts of the Israelites were not transformed through the covenant. 
that will have to await a new and better covenant. I love the words I read years ago. As far as I know, he, Ernie Reisinger, one of the founders of the more modern Reformed Baptist movement, I think he must have written this. He doesn't ascribe it to anybody else, but listen to these words. Run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Isn't that beautiful? All right, so I've taken you through the book of Exodus, kind of a flyover. Sorry we couldn't land the plane. I know you like to look at Bible verses, but let's look at some themes, okay? What are some themes that emerge from the book of Exodus? Certainly the theme of human sinfulness, right? Pharaoh with his hard heart, clearly a picture of the human heart. Early on, he says to Moses, when Moses comes to him, in the name of the Lord, I am who I am, Pharaoh has the temerity to say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Wow. Characteristic of the human heart, isn't it? And then the idolatry of the people of Israel shows the depravity of the human heart. They had been shown so much mercy, so much kindness, this miraculous deliverance, dry shot through the Red Sea. Right after that, they commit idolatry. Human sinfulness is graphically illustrated in Exodus, but we see something of the attributes of God as well. Several attributes of God. When God says, I am that I am, we see his self-existence, his independence, his unchangeableness, his eternality. Stephen Lawson says, it testifies to his dynamic and active self-existence. He is not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. Yet all people and all things are entirely dependent on him for everything. He is, I am who I am, never beginning, never ending, never becoming, never improving, never declining. We also see the sovereignty of God over all things, don't we? Isn't the sovereignty of God evident in the book of Exodus? He sovereignly protects the Hebrew people, allowing them to multiply in the land. He amazingly in his providence preserves this one Hebrew boy, even using Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the one who commanded the Hebrew babies to be killed, he uses his daughter to preserve the ultimate deliverer of Israel. Amazing sovereignty. In the plagues, we see that God rules over the elements, bringing blood and hail and darkness. He rules over the animals, bringing frogs and gnats and flies and locusts. He rules over life and death itself. He rules over the hearts of men as he hardens Pharaoh's heart. We also see the unapproachable and terrifying holiness and fierce wrath of God. It is seen in his severe judgments on unbelieving Pharaoh in Egypt. It is seen in calling his people to be a holy nation. You shall be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. We see his, his holiness and his wrath in drowning the whole army of Pharaoh, his burning anger over the golden calf and the idolatry there. He's a jealous God. His wrath revealed in judgment as something to be celebrated, the song of Moses. And we see the way he appears on Mount Sinai with lightning and thunder and smoke and quaking. He's a foreboding God. He is a God you don't mess with, unapproachable, terrifying holiness and fierce wrath. But don't we also see the incredible patience, kindness, compassion and graciousness of God. He treats kindly those Hebrew midwives. He opens their wombs as a result of them disobeying that, that murderous order. 
even show a little touch. He shows kindness. Imagine that mother bonding with her little son after three months. He lets her be his nursemaid in Pharaoh's palace. He looks with compassion on his suffering people. He graciously provides protection for them in the Passover with the lamb's blood. He miraculously leads them through the sea dry shod. He provides men and quails. He makes a covenant with them, giving them the law to prosper them. He mercifully forgives them when they commit flagrant idolatry. And despite all of that, when the, when the tabernacle is built, the end of chapter 40 says he came and his glory dwelt there. How gracious, kind, compassionate is God. Another theme is the gracious presence of God with his people. God's people are always marked by his presence beginning in the Garden of Eden and now in the tabernacle. Later, there will be a more stationary temple in the land of Canaan. Later, he's going to tabernacle among us in the person of his son, Jesus. And do you know where God is dwelling with his people now? If you're a Christian, he's actually in you and he's here among us. The church is called the temple of God. That's where he is now, and one day, the whole earth is going to become his temple when heaven comes down to earth, New Jerusalem, and the whole earth will be filled with his glory, and it will be his temple. Another theme we can't leave out is the holy law of God. This is the book where the Ten Commandments and other laws are given, right? And I am one who still believes in the perpetuity of the Ten Commandments, that they're still relevant to us, not in the hands of Moses, but in the hands of Christ. We have to see what the New Covenant does with those laws. But they were very special. The only thing written by the finger of God, the only part of the law put in the Ark of the Covenant, something special about those Ten Commandments. In the hands of Christ now, also other laws, the civil laws given to govern the life of Israel, a theocracy, ceremonial laws given to Israel, largely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law, of course, was never intended to save us, but the law is given, well, it's given to show us our sin, to lead us to the Savior. It's given to restrain evil, and it's given in its moral form to guide believers. Someone said years ago, it's a mirror, it's a muzzle, and a map. I don't have time to expand that, but that's very helpful. Another lesson we learn is the weak instruments that God uses to accomplish his mighty purposes. Didn't we see that in Genesis? The flawed instruments. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, they, they were not good dudes. They, they had problems. They had sins, but God used them. And here he takes these midwives, not, not a significant position of, of power, and yet they're used of God to expand the, the, the people. Moses Lord, I'm heavy of speech. I'm heavy of tongue. I can't speak, Lord. I'm not eloquent. I'm sending you anyway. I'll be with your mouth. And then we see the mighty salvation of God. God raises up a deliverer, Moses. He provides for his people manna in the wilderness. He passes over the people in the Passover, and he gives them passage through the Red Sea. Quickly some takeaways, which basically are based on these themes. What does it mean for us? Well, was Pharaoh hard of heart? Were the Israelites ungrateful idolaters? Friends, so was each one of us, weren't we? We were all idolaters. 
We all put something in front of God before we were converted. Paul says to the Thessalonians that um, you turn from idols to serve a living and true God. That's true of all of us. We were all idolaters until God regenerated our hearts. How about God? Is he still the sovereign God that he was then? Yes, what a great comfort to us to know that God controls every detail of our lives. Everything in our lives is under the providential arrangement and plan of God. Is God a God of terrifying holiness and fierce wrath? How grateful that should make us that we've been saved from that wrath. We do not come to Mount Sinai as they did. We come to a throne of grace because every drop of wrath that we deserved has been drunk up by Jesus on the cross. We come to a smiling God, not that wrathful God on sign. He's still that wrathful God, but not toward us who are in Christ Jesus. Is God a God of incredible patience, kindness, and compassion and grace? Yes, hasn't he been so toward you? Is God's gracious presence with his people? Yes. And like I said, now we rejoice in the presence of God in us and among us as a church. The church is the big deal, brothers and sisters. And what you're going to get from this pulpit is that it's all about the church. The church, the people of God, the new society which God is redeeming from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to gather them someday on a new heaven and a new earth. The church is the big deal because this is the dwelling place of God. Were the promises and purposes of God fulfilled in Exodus? Oh, I think I left that out. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Exodus is the story of them becoming a great nation. Why? Because God fulfills his promises, and he'll fulfill the others as well. Every promise God makes will be fulfilled, and we have future promises. Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, and you know what? They, they won't, because God will save every one of his elect from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation he pleases. The gospel will succeed to the degree God wills it. Christ will come again. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we will all one day receive resurrected bodies. Was the law given at Sinai? We need to understand that the law can never save us. But as Christians, we are gospel law keepers. You know, some people think Christian life is just grace, 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 and there's no obedience. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John said in 1 John 2, 4, if anyone says, I know God and doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. We are glad, willing, gospelly, obedient people. Does God use weak and unlikely instruments as he did the patriarchs, the midwives, and Moses? Yes. Do you feel weak, inadequate for your calling as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, some other calling? Friends, God loves to show his strength in our weakness. Just like he was with Moses. Moses, you're not eloquent. I'm going to be with your mouth. You feel inadequate? You feel unfit for the calling? God says, if I call you to it, I will equip you to do it. And then finally, was God a mighty Savior in Exodus? He is a mightier Savior in Jesus Christ. As he raised up Moses... Hebrews 3 says Jesus is a greater than Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. We have the greater than Moses in Jesus. Did God provide manna for them in the wilderness? Jesus in John 6 says what? 
I am the true manna. I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will have eternal life and not die. He's the true manna. And did the Lord pass over the Hebrews because of the blood of the lamb? Friends, the reason God will pass over us in judgment at the day of our hour of our death and in the final judgment, the reason why we will not suffer one drop of God's wrath in judgment, he will pass over us while he judges others is because of the blood, not of a animal lamb, but of the ultimate true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If that blood is covering you because you have put your faith in Jesus, you need not fear one drop of God's wrath, either now, in the hour of your death, or in the day of judgment. God will pass over you. And did God allow his people to pass safely out of slavery in Egypt to a freedom? Well, God has given us a greater exodus. A couple verses really quick in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes this comment referring to Exodus when he says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All the people who went through the Red Sea were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? They were identified with Moses. In other words, we're with Moses. We're leaving Egypt behind and we're headed for a new land. We are baptized into Moses. Well, compare that to Romans chapter 6 where Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. And then he goes on to say, we have been buried with him, Christ, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. They were baptized into Moses, free from Egypt, going to Canaan. We have been baptized into Jesus Christ. We are in identification with, union with Jesus Christ which has brought us out of the old life of sin into a new life, a walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit. And finally, was God with his people in the tabernacle? John 1.14, using that same Greek word, says Jesus tabernacled among us. Friends, there's only one place to meet with God now. And that is in Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, only one place where you can meet with God, Jesus Christ. May you believe in him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Exodus and what it tells us about you and about your great salvation, pointing to the greater salvation we have in your son. We thank you in his name. Amen. Well, one of our favorite songs to celebrate the Lord's Supper, song number 10, Behold the Lamb. In the blue book, Behold the Lamb. Stand to sing, number 10.